Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and I am so happy to be here today to review not a Stephen King publication, but an adaptation of Stephen King's greatest publication. Of course, I'm talking about 1986's horror masterpiece, It. This past week, we, constant readers, have been beyond fortunate. Fortunate isn't the right word. Lucky, I guess? It has just been a great time to be a Stephen King fan because this past weekend, I'm recording this on uh, Tuesday, September 12th. So on September 8th, we saw the North American release of Andy Muschietti's uh, adaptation of it. And if you are listening to this, chances are you saw it because I think that everyone uh, that has a, a pulse went to go see it. And I think that some people uh, might not have a pulse after watching the movie. And some people that didn't have a pulse rose from the grave to go see the movie. Um, it was a smash hit, to say the least. It was it was everything that we wanted The Dark Tower to be, but was not in terms of critical and commercial success. Um, people really seemed to, to, to want this movie. People went out in droves to see this movie, and it uh, is definitely going to garner a sequel, uh, which, is, which is very exciting. So I know you have been uh, patient, everyone. You have been waiting for my review on social media. I've been getting some flack um, and, you know, some understanding. I mean, there's been some good ribbing, but uh, nothing, nothing too hardcore. But, um, but yeah, uh, thank you, everyone, for, for being patient. Uh, usually in these cases, I, I like to, to get out as quickly as possible to be on the, the forefront of the reviews. Uh, I, I lagged a little bit this week. I'll explain why uh, during the review itself, why it's it's coming out um, early in the week rather than the, the weekend, which is what I, I had originally planned. But uh, I will explain the, what this review is going to look like, and I'll explain why I'll be having a second review um, as well. In the meantime, I uh, want to do some shameless plugging for some some websites out there so for those of you actually just let, let me kind of scratch uh scratch that and, and just let me start over what i what i should have said earlier um welcome welcome everyone to the stephen king cast i got ahead of myself because i was so excited to actually sit down and record this episode but uh for for long time listeners um who have been just patient thank you for waiting and uh, for new listeners, and I, I know that a lot of you are new listeners because the, the interest in it um, has caused you to possibly um, type in Stephen King or it into iTunes to see what comes up. So this might be your first Stephen King cast episode. So um, if you are new to the Stephen King cast, welcome. I'm glad that you could join me here. Just so you know, this is uh, 160-something uh, episodes into the podcast. Um, when I originally sat down in August of 2014 to begin the Stephen King cast, there wasn't a lot of Stephen King podcasts out there. In fact, there wasn't a lot of buzz about Stephen King. The, the whole purpose of the Stephen King cast was to uh, start to rebuild the cultural conversation about uh, Stephen King because growing up, 
he was the George R. R. Martin of his time. He was the J.K. Rowling of his time. His his intellectual properties was what everyone talked about. You couldn't you know take five steps without seeing some sort of Stephen King adaptation or a new publication about Stephen King or a commercial for one of his books. The Stand comes to mind. Uh, so there was a there was Stephen King everywhere, and then it died down over the years. And uh, thankfully, we are, are are living in a Stephen King resurgence. It's a Stephen King renaissance. I am glad that I could be um, a small part of it, um, and I just want to, to welcome you here. So if you are new to the Stephen King cast, please note that, like I said at the beginning of uh, this episode, it was One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. I review each of Stephen King's works in the chronological order of publication. There's a catch to that. The catch is I've pretty much uh, succeeded in that. There, there's there's a couple um, uh, areas that I did not cover in my reread of, of his works in the chronological order of publication, and I'm going to be doing some cleanup in the episodes to come. I have gone back to my episode um, and the, the stories found within Night Shift, and I have reviewed some of the stories I did not review the first time around and some of the, the movie adaptations that I didn't review um the first time around. So if you are new to the Stephen King cast, please note that you have like 160 episodes to go back. So if you are a Stephen King fan, um, just go back to the beginning, start with Carrie, and you'll be able to follow my journey as I reread all of Stephen King's works and place each of his works in, in context of the time that he was writing it in, um, you know, just where he was in terms of his life, how he was battling his addictions, whether it be uh, fatherhood or, or, or what have you and then I'm able to just chart the the growth of what winds up becoming the the dark tower multiverse and I'm able to you know place all the his references into context so it was a fun fun endeavor for me I think that was a fun endeavor for for the listeners out there so if this is your first time welcome to the Stephen King cast and please note that you have all the episodes that I have ever done at your disposal so when you're done with this episode you can go back and and listen to everything that has has, has come before and you can get the whole story of the Stephen King cast and, and dive in deeply with me to all of Stephen King's works so with that out of the way um, new listeners uh, um, you know old listeners I don't like saying old um, loyal listeners I guess uh, you know I, I'm, I'm excited to to be reviewing the, the It movie um, so welcome welcome and welcome back so there we go there's there's my intro um, now what I want to do, I want to shamelessly plug some uh, some websites out there. So longtime listeners uh, may have listened to a couple interviews that I've done lately. One interview was with uh, Matt Kellick, who runs uh, ka-tet19.net, a t-shirt website that specializes in Stephen King intellectual property. Um, I'm telling you guys, he is the real deal. His shirts look great. They feel great. I'm not saying this because they are the official sponsor of the Stephen King cast. Um, I'm not receiving a kickback from this. The only thing I'm receiving is high-quality t-shirts when I shell out a couple bucks at an affordable price. Um, as a Stephen King fan, the, these t-shirts, they, they make me feel good about wearing... Um, 
you know Stephen you know Stephen King uh, stuff on my person sounds kind of weird um, but what's what's also good is that you know Matt went through the proper channels this isn't some you know black market um, stolen intellectual property here you know he he you know got a lawyer he worked with the, the the copyrights here Stephen King's getting you know some some percentage of this so it's 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 the real deal they are very very stylish like I said they're very very comfortable when I went to go see it I was wearing my Losers Club t-shirt. Um, you can still get your Loser Club t-shirt. He just released a stand t-shirt. I saw on Instagram today that he released a Cujo t-shirt. So it's not just, um, it might have been inspired originally by the Dark Tower books, but he's been expanding um, his his collection. And talking to Matt for, for the interview was a highlight of the Stephen King cast. I had a, I had a blast um, and I look forward to talking to him in the future um, and I look forward to, to, to hearing from some of you who have, who go out and, and buy his shirts and some of you have you know tweeted at me and, and written to me and, and, and you know mentioned that you have uh, you have supported Matt. So you're, you're not just getting quality t-shirts. you are supporting um, someone that um, is a huge Stephen King fan that has channeled his creative energy into um, into uh, creating something based on the works of Stephen King and, and that's something that I think that we can all relate to and I think it's something that we can support so head on over to kadashtet19.net um, and I guarantee you that you will find something that you will be interested in wearing on your person um, they, they, they're they awesome t-shirts guys head on over there and also don't forget that uh, speaking of interviews I also had earlier this summer interviewed uh, Josh Brucker the writer-director of One for the Road again that was an awesome interview um, as well, he and I, we were able to, to geek out about critters and Jurassic Park and um, and all things Stephen King, and it was just great to, to get on the the ground floor of this up and coming endeavor. And you can be a part of this endeavor if you just head on over to One for the Road 2018. You'll be able to to see the progress of this movie. Um, you can help uh, finance this movie and make it come alive. So if you are interested to see what the world of Stephen King and the world of Maine and Jerusalem's Lot looks like post Salem's Lot, then you can have a part of it. Just head on over to OneForTheRoad2018.com to get all of the latest updates for this this up and coming film. So Josh, again, much like Matt, he is someone that is a huge Stephen King fan that just wanted to create art based on the works of Stephen King. And so I think that again, kind of going back to what I was just saying about Matt and the T-shirts. I think that we, we not necessarily owe it, but I, I, I think that being a part of a larger quartet, when we have the opportunity to support each other, I think that we should do just that. So um, whether it be a t-shirt, whether it be just a, a small donation to making um, you know an up-and-coming writer-director's dream come alive, I, I think that you know we can really help each other out out there. So um, kadashtet19.net one for the road 2018 um there's good stuff going out there in the world of stephen king fandom and you can be a part of it um also uh you know i'm kind of a part of it by by doing this podcast and i can't thank you guys enough for all of the kind words that you have sent my way on on uh on itunes now this is something that that really helps the stephen king cast now like i said when i started out the stephen king cast i there wasn't a lot out there. I mean, there was the um, awesome Stephen King podcast um, run by 
Lou and Lilia. Um, I mean, the, those guys have been doing it for a while now. Um, but other than that, there, there was not a lot. And um, now there is there is definitely more. And more is a good thing. But I would... I. After 166 episodes, I I would like to still be, um, I guess, relevant is the term, and the best way to do that is to make sure that my uh, the Stephen King cast is up near the, the the top of the the Stephen King search on iTunes, and and the way that that happen is for um, reviews and subscriptions on the iTunes. So if you have a few minutes on your hands, guys, and a review on iTunes would would really really help me out. Um, so I'm going to take a couple moments to read some of the reviews that have been written lately. First up, we have B. Lawrence 3, who just writes, Great! One of the most entertaining podcasts I've ever listened to. Thanks, and keep the reviews coming. So B. Lawrence, I plan on it. Up next, we have Lake Disney, who writes, SK Diehards, look no further. I've been a huge Stephen King fan, or Stephen King nerd since elementary school, and this podcast offers some great analysis of the work. Losers Club for life, keep it up. Lake Disney, thank you so much. Then we have uh, Mark P88, one of my favorite podcasts. This is an incredibly well done and enjoyable podcast. The host's passion for King's works is infectious and has very much reinvigorated my own interests of the material. On the technical side, the audio is great and well edited. I recommend this podcast to anyone who loves story, writing, and of course, Stephen King. So Mark P88, thank you so much. and thank you for the, the, the compliment of the audio. That's been a sore spot for me lately. I think that I'm overthinking the, the audio quality. There's been an update into to uh, GarageBand, and it's it's really thrown me off. My settings were uh, reset or something, and to me, the, the sound quality just doesn't sound the same, but uh, but I really do appreciate it. Up next, we have Andred80, um, who writes, a great way to delve into the depths of... There might be more, but it just says dot, dot, dot. There's just an ellipsis afterwards. Anyway, he writes, uh, um, Stephen King cast is a solo podcast by Constant Reader. I typically don't listen to solo podcasts, as the few I've sampled have been poor quality or not entertaining. But Constant Reader does a great job at moving things along and keeping listeners interested. Each episode goes through any King-related news before briefly summarizing the book, story, or adaptation then delving into analysis of themes, characters, and connections with other king or horror texts. It's great that he not only reviews the written works, but also adaptations of those works into film or TV in separate episodes. This way, listeners get a sense of differences between the two. I only recently got interested as the result of the new It movie and listened to the older episodes reviewing the book since it's been a while since I read it, but I will continue to listen and relive my memories of the fiction I read so much of while younger and may revisit now that my interest has been rekindled. So, Andred80, thank you uh, so much for those kind words. And it means a lot because I worried when I started this about being a solo podcaster. I, I know that, um, you know, if you have someone else to bounce off of it, it's, it's so much more um, enjoyable to listen to. But, uh, but that's why I need you guys. That's why I need you to, to, to bounce off of um, with, with reviews like this and with the emails that will be coming later in this episode. And then lastly, we have Addicting by 3 Dean Girls, who writes, I'm a casual fan of SK, but this podcast has made all SK material so fun to read, listen to, and watch, and revitalize my SK interests. The podcasts go into detail and point out items I missed on the first read, listen, or watch. I wish I had more podcasts like this for other authors I like because it's so cool. 
I've been drowning myself in SK books, audiobooks, and TV or movies. Enjoy this cast and be amazed at what this guy is doing in honor of Stephen King and his fans. You are going to love it. 3D and Girls, I, I, I hope that, that people love it. Um, I think they will too. Thank you for the kind words. Um, and so guys, like I said, I, uh, I can't do this without you. So if you have a few minutes on your hands... Um, just head on over to iTunes and uh, leave a, a quick review. Okay, guys. Um, so with that out of the way, let's get into it. Let's let's talk about it. So just to backtrack a little bit, if you haven't done so already, I, uh, I just re-released my three-part review of the book, It. Um, so... If this is your first time around, um, please note that, just to rehash it a little bit, um, and I apologize for long-time listeners, but it was the one that, that started it all. It was the, the gateway book to my lifelong love of Stephen King. It uh, increased my brain power. It, it, creates my, it increased my uh, critical thinking muscle uh, in my brain. It, uh, it just made me a better reader. It made me a better thinker. It made me a better writer. It just, I think it made me a better human. Um, it made me realize I'd always been a reader, but when it came around and I read it and I was in fifth or sixth grade, um, it, it, it just, it was a, a new type of book. I'd been reading kid books up until that point, and, and this really was like the, the first real adult book and what an adult book to read. Uh, but I mean, it, it just changed my life, and it changed the the trajectory of of the of the life that I was living, and ultimately, it led me down the road to the man that I became, um, the one that is podcasting into this microphone right now. So it, my life has everything to do with this this book. Um, it struck me; I had never felt the feelings that I had felt before um, as I had read that book. Um, it, it really moved me. It made me laugh. It, it's you know a cliche. It made me laugh. It made me cry. The whole nine yards. It, it it really really affected me, and I was strongly affected by the fact that Stephen King was writing it in his thirties, um, in his forties, uh, whenever he wrote it, and he was writing of a time that I was currently living. Um, when I was like 12 years old, he was writing about children my age, and he was capturing that that experience so magically, so perfectly. I was amazed at his writing ability. And uh, from there, I was just all in on Stephen King. And so, if you want all of my thoughts on on it, you can um, you know listen in the chronological order of publication as I release the episodes, or you can just scroll back just uh, over the last week or so in, in the podcast feed um, you'll get episodes 1, 2 and 3. I also did a bonus episode that connects it to the Dark Tower. I did not re-release that. You'd have to go back through the, the podcast feed. I also reviewed the 1990 um, ABC TV miniseries and then at that time of reviews I concluded it with a um, a review of Derry, Maine, kind of. I uh, took the tour. I took the Stephen King tour in Bangor. Um, it was a, a wonderful birthday present from, or a Christmas present from my wife. And uh, we went up to Bangor and got the official tour with Stu. Um, and it was it was awesome. So if you want just just uh, to, to, to spend a lot of time in Derry, there's a lot of Derry-related material for you to, to peruse on the Stephen King cast. So 
it means everything to me. And when I had first heard that New Line Cinema was remaking it or adapting it as whether you call it a remake, whether you call it an adaptation, regardless, New Line Cinema was making it. Um, and originally it was going to be directed by uh, Kerry Fukunaga, who had uh, directed all the episodes in the first season of True Detective. And I was very, very excited based on what I had seen of him from True Detective. And he had co-written it. And then after some, what I can assume was some just conflict with the studio, he walked away. And I grew very, very bitter and disappointed at it. Um, make a long story short, my I started to come around when Anthony Bresnikan started um, reporting on it and this guy over at Entertainment Weekly does such a great job at covering all things Stephen King. His his coverage of the Dark Tower was the best thing about the Dark Tower. But with it, I mean, the he working with New Line Cinema, working with Andy Muschietti and and whoever was in charge of publicity, they 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 were able to roll out information in such a fun way. Whether it be the the first reveal of Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise or pictures of the loser or information um, about the, 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 the production or the, the thought and the detail that went into all of the, the, the costuming, especially around Pennywise's costuming, which uh, made me realize that there was so much thought being put into this movie that it was not just going to be some some quick, shoddily put-together production just to make a quick buck on a um, long-standing uh, cash cow, which, you know, we live in an age of nostalgia right now, so it could have been very easy for New Line Cinema to, to just go out there and make a quick, uh, cheap, it movie and just purely cater to nostalgia and not care about the quality. That's not what we got. And um, so... Really, I, I think that when I knew it was going to be good was there was a couple, might have been cinema, CinemaCon maybe, or um, I don't know, one, one of the cons or one of the festivals uh, released some some footage and it got a lot of buzz. And then like a week or two later, there was a teaser for the teaser trailer and I got excited and then they released the poster and it was of Georgie looking up at a shadowy clown obscured by darkness and they just seem to get it that and i'm not talking about the clown i'm talking about that x factor they got it whatever that mood was whatever that that the the qualities of the book that that made it pop they seemed to really capture it in this marketing um and then they released the trailer and then i realized that we were in for it that we were going to get a real deal adaptation here that was going to live up to it. Um, and so it, it got my hopes up. And uh, then, of course, summer of 2017 also gave us the Dark Tower adaptation. And I feel bad even bringing up the Dark Tower because it is just so unfair what this movie uh, retroactively does to the, to the Dark Tower. Um, it just makes it look that much worse by comparison because this is a really well done adaptation that makes changes but you accept the changes that it makes because there's so much love for the material and it's a lot of decisions that were made that were the right decisions to make and i'll get into them in a bit whereas the dark tower and i just don't i don't mean to tear one thing down to to build something else up but um i guess i'm still 
still raw from the Dark Tower experience, but all the decisions that seem to be made in the Dark Tower just pushed it further away from what the Dark Tower was, but the changes that were made to it still hewed closely to the 1986 source material. So... So, to make a long story short, I was very excited to, to sit down um, and record this episode to see this movie. Um, so, here we go. Um, before I get any further, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so I have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. So, ladies and gentlemen, here we go from Wikipedia. On a rainy day in October 1988, Bill Denbro gives his seven-year-old brother Georgie a sailboat made from notebook paper. Georgie takes the boat out into the street and sails it down the water-filled gutter. He accidentally lets the boat wash into the sewer with the flowing water. As he peers into the storm drain, he's startled by the presence in the sewer of a strange man dressed as a clown who introduces himself as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Pennywise claims that the storm blew the whole circus, including him, into the sewers and offers Georgie a balloon as he attempts to lure the boy. When Georgie reaches in to retrieve his boat, Pennywise grabs his arm and bites it off before dragging the boy into the sewer. Eight months later, in June 1989, on the last day of term at Derry High School, Bill and his friends, Richie Tozier, Eddie Kasprak, and Stanley Uris, run afoul of bully Henry Bowers and his gang. At the same time, Beverly Marsh, a young girl abused by her father and bullied mercilessly for being a slut, runs into Ben Hanscom, a kind but overweight new kid who secretly has a crush on her. While making a delivery to a local butcher shop for his grandfather, homeschooled Mike Hanlon encounters Pennywise before nearly getting run over by Henry. Bill, still haunted by Georgie's disappearance and the resulting neglect from his grief-stricken parents, discovers that his brother's body may have washed up in the marshy wasteland called the Barrens and recruits his friends to check it out. Meanwhile, Ben Hanscom spends time in the library where he finds a book on Harry's dis- on Derry's history, learning the town has been plagued by mysterious unexplained tragedies and child disappearances for centuries. Ben is then lured into the basement by mysterious Easter eggs like the ones from the Kitchener Ironworks incident, narrowly escaping Pennywise in the form of a burnt headless boy. But Ben is... But Ben is... Runs... It says, but Ben runs into Henry's gang, fleeing into the Barrens when Henry attempted to carve his name on the boy's stomach. Ben runs into Billy's group as they found the sneaker of a missing girl named Betty Ripson while searching for Georgie, getting supplies from a local pharmacy to treat his wounds with Beverly's help. At the same time, Henry's friend Patrick Hockstetter is killed by Pennywise while wandering in the sewers for Ben. The next day, Eddie is attacked by Pennywise in the form of a rotting leper while passing passing an abandoned house on Nybold Street. Stan has a traumatizing experience encounter the clown in the form of an animated figure from a painting. Beverly hears the voices of several missing children, including Patrick, coming from her bathroom sink. A clog of her cut hair ties her to the sink as she is covered in the erupting blood that coats the bathroom. 
the father comes in to investigate and Beverly realizes that Mr. Marsh cannot see the blood. Bill is lured into the basement of his house by what he thought is Georgie narrowly escaping Pennywise. Soon after helping Beverly clean her bathroom as they can see the blood, Bill and his friends discover Henry's gang beating up Mike. They chase the bullies off with rocks and befriend Mike. A few weeks later, the group, who now refer to themselves as the Losers Club, come to realize that they are each being terrorized by the same entity. Noticing that it assumes the appearance of what they fear, Ben deduced that the creature wakes up every 27 years to feed on the children of Derry before returning to hibernation. While, Bill, while in Bill's garage, nearly killed by Pennywise, the group determines that it moves about unseen by using the sewers around Derry's well on which 29 Nightbolt Street is built. Uh, after Bill, Richie, and Eddie enter the house while the others remain outside, Pennywise separates the trio and attempts to pick them off, starting with Eddie after he broke his arm while falling through a hole upstairs. But the rest of the losers arrive and Beverly impales it through the head with a fence post, the clown limping off into the well after slashing Ben. Eddie's mother arrives and is horrified by her son's broken arm, taking him away. The group begins to splinter, with Richie, Stan, and Mike abandoning the others uh, of fear when Bill insists that they continue to hunt it. One day in August, Beverly manages to inca incapacitate her father with a porcelain toilet lid when he attempts to rape her, but she is abducted by Pennywise, with Bill reassembling the losers and mounting a rescue. It responds by giving Henry, who is gradually becoming insane, his missing switchblade while compelling Henry to murder his abusive father before sending him to kill the losers. At the Nybolt house, the others manage to reach a pathway into the well while Mike is attacked by Henry. During the struggle, Mike pushes Henry down the well, where he seemingly falls to his death. It lures Stan from the others to eat him, only to be chased off when the others arrive. They then find its lair in an underground cooling tower containing a mountain of decaying circus props and children's belongings where they find a catatonic Beverly hovering below the floating corpses of the missing children. While the others pull Beverly to the ground, Ben's kiss restoring her to consciousness, Bill uses Mike's gun in an attempt to kill it when the creature attempted to trick him as Georgie, but it reverted to Pennywise and grabbed Bill, offering to spare the other losers if they allow him to eat their friend. Instead, they break Bill free and brutally wound it despite its attempts to use their fears against him. Bill coldly tells the wounded Pennywise that they know it needs their fear to survive, and that they effectively starve the creature by making it fear them. Knowing that he has no more power over them while beginning to dissolve, it escapes into a deep pit and the floating children float back into the ground. Uh, upon discovering Georgie's yellow raincoat, Bill accepts his brother's death and emotionally breaks down while the others confront, um, com comfort him. One month later, Beverly informs the group of a vision she had while catatonic from seeing its deadlights, where she saw them fighting the creature as adults. The losers form a blood oath that they will return to Derry in 27 years if it returns and destroys the creature and destroy the creature once and for all. After the other losers depart one by one, Beverly tells Bill that she is moving to live with her aunt in Portland the following morning. Before Beverly leaves, Bill reveals his true feelings and they kiss. In an after credits audio clip, children continue to sing Oranges and Lemons while Pennywise laughs maniacally, indicating that he has survived. Okay, guys. So here is the deal. 
Um, this is going to be one of uh, a two-part review. This is going to be the bulk review. I'm going to do a cleanup episode um, after I see it a second time. And I need to see it a second time, not just because I want to see it a second time, but I really do need to see it a second time. Because here's why. Um, I decided that I wanted to uh, see this movie... Um, with my wife, um, not typically as we normally would in the theater, but I, I, this summer, uh, my wife and I, we went to go see, uh, we went to the drive-in. I've never been to a drive-in before. Um, my wife has asked me for years to go to the drive-in and, uh, this, this year we finally did it. Um, this summer we saw Atomic Blonde. Uh, the drive-in is about an hour away. Um, and it was a great experience. It was awesome. It was a great summer experience and we wanted to recreate it, um, in the fall, um, sort of kick off the, the Halloween season. And, uh, the earliest we could do it was, uh, on Saturday. So the movie was released on Thursday. We didn't get to see it until Saturday. Um, and, uh, it was, it was great. But the, th- the thing is seeing a movie <laughs> in the drive-in you're not going to the drive-in for the movie you're going to the drive-in for the drive-in um so what i mean by that is is this like there's a whole experience and i think that it's important if you have a drive-in that is within two hours of where you live i would recommend you heading out at least once to the drive-in because i'm a i'm a newfound convert to the drive-in experience um and i found it to be quite magical um because don't get me wrong i one pleasure that I get is just is going to the movies. I, I love just being able to sit in a dark theater um, with strangers that are there for the exact reason that you are there and you are all without speaking and engaging in, in the same story that is being delivered to you. It is, it is a, a profound moment for, for even the worst of movies, the, the experience itself. Um, but with that said, I mean, it, it can get like, just to be a, a rote, uh, you know, experience that you just go do over and over and over again. So I think that doing something different, you know, going to an outside film festival or, or going to a, a drive-in, um, I, I think that it, it kind of switches things up. And so for me personally, um, it, it, it was a great experience because this particular drive-in is an hour away and the drive to there is through deep forests and uh, winding roads and uh, through farmland and small, you know, New England towns. Uh, and so it's a, oh my God, it's such a peaceful, peaceful experience. And then, you know, we get there and, and you pull up and, you know, you, you turn on the radio and the sound comes through your radio and they're playing oldies music um, and there's just this this buzz in the air, um, you know, because everyone is kind of outside and having a good time and it has kind of like a festival feel to it. And this particular drive-in has, you know, the concession stand that's kind of like a diner on the inside and there's burgers and there's dogs and there's... Um, uh, fried dough and there's of course popcorn um you know and you get your soda and i just gotta say just quick review at french fries uh quick the, the hot dogs they're just they're just good they have a, that that snap to them um i know that you didn't tune in for a hot dog review you tune in for an it review but i would be remiss if i didn't review the hot dogs um 
So, you know, you're just able to just like get all the food and go back to your car and just relax in your car. And it's just, it's, it's good. It's fun. And like everyone was there and there was all these, you know, people walking around with red balloons. And, you know, I, you know, I had my losers club t-shirt that you can get from cod-tet19.net. Um, I had my, uh, yellow chucks on, uh, to commemorate Georgie's, uh, yellow slicker. I had an official red, um, it balloon. Um, and I had my uh, Funko uh, Pennywise that I brought um, that I brought with us, and uh, you know I, I posted some pictures on Instagram and Facebook on Twitter, so you can you can find them there. And you know it was just exciting, and you know we there was some employees dressed up as clowns walking around giving out balloons, and so it was just it was just fun, you know. So I mean the experience itself is magical, uh, but the problem is, and why I kind of hesitated giving a review i mean i was busy this weekend anyway but i i really hesitated giving a review without seeing it again because um watching the drive-in and it's not the best experience to review a movie like i said you're 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 there for the drive-in experience and that can be very limiting to the movie itself so let me explain there are a number of distractions when it comes to the drive-in um one is just other people I, I mean, there are unspoken rules in a movie theater when you sit down to, to go to the movies. And, you know, some people will break those rules. They'll talk, they'll text, they'll be on their phone or, or whatever. But for the most part, in, in my movie-going experience, people are respectful of the dark theater. That's not necessarily the case where they drive in. There's just a lot of distractions. Um, you know, someone might turn their headlights on, which happened on more than one occasion um, at, at this experience. And when that happens, it just washes out the screen. You can barely see what's happening there. There will be cars that, um, will just pull out and drive away. There are people that come in late, so they, they'll be driving in. And of course, like, even if they have their headlights on low and maybe not high, I mean, the, their brake lights are on, um, and, you know, people will get out of their cars and they'll be walking in front of your car or maybe they'll be talking in the car behind you. Um, and because, you know, my wife and I, we're, we're in a car, uh, we know that if we are talking to each other, we're not disturbing anyone else. So there isn't that, uh, you know, there's no reason for us not to talk to each other. So we weren't, make a long story short, not only do you not see the movie as well as you would if you were in a darkened theater, but you're also not as plugged into the movie as you would be during the, the darkened theater. Now, don't get me wrong. I was looking for looking forward to this movie. I was loving this movie. Um, but the, the beauty of watching this movie outside, um, now just kind of picture this. The, the screen is set against a backdrop of, of trees. So, of course, the movie starts. We went to go see it at 8. You know, it's starting to get dark out. Um, but, of course, the, the, the gradual gradient of the colors of the night start to reveal themselves. And you have the stars overhead and you have the, the, the trees, which are just, they become dark black um, cut out shadows of the trees themselves and the the sky is a is a lighter um, blue um, and then that becomes purple and then that becomes just a, a different type of dark than the trees themselves and then eventually towards the end of the movie you, you started to see this light behind the, the screen and you started to see the clouds behind the screen and they were all 
glowing with this reflection, um, this buttery reflection on the bottom of the clouds from a rising moon. So then I started to focus not on the movie, but on the moon rising. And it, then my wife and I were just talking about how awesome it was that we were watching the first the, the, the glow and the light of the moon start to emerge from behind the screen. The, the moon itself started to come out. And of course, this is happening in the last half an hour of the movie when things are really, really ramping up. And my wife and I are just so amazed at how awesome this experience looked as a life experience, not necessarily as a movie. And then there we are. We're in our car. We're snapping pictures, which you can find on my Instagram feed um, and my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed of, of you know us taking pictures of the moon rising behind the movie. So I, I will fully admit that towards the end of the movie, I can't strongly review the conclusion to the movie because I was not 100% plugged into the movie itself as I was um, plugged into the experience at being in the drive-in. And also, I can't really you know talk too much about the special effects because, um, like I said, there, there were many, many times during the movie when lights would be shining and, and I wouldn't be getting the, the full picture and because so much of this movie is about darkness and dark shadows and what lives within the dark I, I need to see it again in a dark theater to make myself feel as though I am there um, sitting in your car you never feel as though you are there I was you're, you're always outside of the movie experience you're never really in the movie itself so I, I, I'm saying all of this because I need you to understand that I am seeing the movie again later this week when I see that movie again I will be back um, with a, a more in-depth less generalized um, review of the things that I liked um, and I seeing it again actually might reshape how I think about the opinions that I'm putting forth in this particular episode so I just really wanted that disclaimer out there um, but you know the the, the good news is, is that it allows me to, to get um, you know, two episodes. Um, it forces me to think um, even that much deeper about this movie. So, um, to make a long story short, whether I saw it under the best of circumstances or not, um, whether I saw it in the darkened theater or um, within my car, uh, it, it doesn't really matter because. I really enjoyed this movie and what it comes down to is I need to decide whether or not I loved this movie or really liked this movie and I'm, I'm hoping that when I go back to see it in the theater that I will land in the in the category of loving this movie and I really really want to love this movie but like I said I was very distracted as I watched it but this movie was really really good guys um I know that a lot has been, uh, you know, talked about the, the, the changes. Um, you know, I, I talked about the changes in the Dark Tower. But the changes that were made here, um, I believe, worked worked very, very well. But even before we get to any changes, um, that beginning, um, when this movie begins, it is an iconic moment in, in pop culture, in culture, just in general, in fiction. Um, we all know where it's heading um, but it doesn't make it any less thrilling. In fact, it, 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 it's, it's more tense because you're wondering if they're going to be able to deliver. Um, so watching Georgie, watching him step closer to his doom, and when that boat slips into the storm drain, it, it's like that, that moment on a roller coaster, right? When it, 
it's right, you know, you're going up, you're going up, you're going up, um, and it's right before it's about to dip for the first time, you know, that, 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 that here it comes moment, you know, you're just getting ready for his big introduction, it's big introduction, Pennywise's big introduction, and then soon, as soon as his face pops up, that's when you go on that roller coaster, um, you know, so you're just asking yourself, how is this scene going to play out, is it going to stand on its own, how is Skarsgård going to sound, you know, is he going to be able to balance that right mixture of being unsettling and being creepy, now there is so much, so much resting on this moment. Perhaps the entire movie is just resting on this moment itself. I, I don't know. But, you know, if Muschietti and, or Muschietti and, and Skarsgård fail to deliver this opening salvo of horror, you know, this big reintroduction to, to pop culture's most feared clown and the most famous of king monsters, then the movie itself might buckle under failed expectations so there's a lot writing on it. Like I said, maybe everything was writing on it. But man, it delivers. Um, it was great. I was just lured into that conversation. I was just like loving Skarsgård's performance. And I just love how he makes it his own. You know, there was, you, you're, you're always going to get people that are going to compare it to, 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 uh, to Tim Curry. And maybe that's not the right way. But people are going to give you an either or. You have to like one or the other. But um Skarsgård was able to just I guess maybe he was he was freed in a way because he had to be so different from 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 Tim Curry to make it his own and it's just the Tim Curry version seems so much more in control and this one seems insane you know and like I had long talked about on this podcast the the this interpretation of Pennywise very much leans into the alienness of this character that this is an extra-dimensional entity that is recreating the approximation of what it thinks a clown is and what it thinks a human is and it's failing it's almost coming close but it's failing whereas the the tim curry version does a really good job at pretending this one doesn't and that and the fact that it's so confident in what it's doing makes it that much creepier so right away, I was totally into what it was doing, um, luring Georgie in. And then there's that moment, that terrifying moment where it just doesn't want to play with him anymore. And it he really becomes an animal. He's not smiling. I can't, I can't remember, but is he growling? Like, it, it's, it's this real creepy tonal shift where the danger just immediately escalates. And I really liked... I think that was a good way to show that this thing is not human. It is not a clown. It is an animal. It's not even an animal. Like it is a, a an an alien entity that is hungry. They did a great job with that, um, and it it makes this moment. And um, I just listened to my review, not my review, but the uh, the Castle of Horror. Um, they 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 just reviewed um, it and. They, they discuss the, the, the horrific brutality of that moment of we actually watch Georgie not just disappear, but he gets his arm chopped off like, spoiler alert, Sean in Jaws for the Revenge, and Georgie tries crawling away on a bloody stump um, and is dragged back. Um, I this this goes back to me needing to see in the theater. I was not necessarily sold on watching his his jaws expand that way and the the look of his Georgie's missing arm. I did think it was really effective um, watching 
from the, the, the camera angle of the, the, the neighbor who saw Georgie bent down by the, 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 the drain. Um, to, to know that you're so close to safety yet so far away that stuff like that just really, really works for me. So that opening works so well. And I would say that Skarsgård's performance um, and clearly the, the, the smash success of this movie this past weekend, it is now time, ladies and gentlemen, to definitively, definitively crown Pennywise as King's most famous monster. Not Jack Nicholson, not uh, Carrie, not Christine, not Randall Flagg, um, you know, not uh, not Cujo. No, guys, it is time to to one hundred percent, inarguably, just give the belt, give the crown to Pennywise because um, he has he has taken this throne um, to, to to be King's creme de la creme villain. So, guys. Look, I'm just going to talk very, very brief. Well, not briefly, but I'm just going to kind of go through a bunch of bullet points rather than running analysis of what worked. So I've already talked about the opening, talked about um, Bill Skarsgård doing a great job distancing himself from Tim Curry, just being his own thing. The fact that he's so tall and lanky, like he looks insectile, which lends itself to the, the book's origins of, of being a spider, spoiler alert. Um, but, uh, but all around, the performances in this movie were magical. Now, this movie would not succeed if it wasn't for the kids, if it wasn't for the Losers Clubs. And if we did not get the... The, the, the right casting in place it could have failed spectacularly but kudos major props to whoever the casting director um, is because they got the right kids for the right roles here um, and the, the, the banter between all of them the way that they interact with each other it just seems so natural um, and, and just Muschietti's decision to focus not on the, the the horrors or the clown but actually just the friendship of this group and the struggles of this group that was the right decision um I can see another director or another creative type saying no let's just focus on the scares um let's just you know it's the cheap way to do it whatever Let, let's just get you know the kids to, they'll just they'll they'll be there let's just get to the scares let's get to the, the spooky parts there is a great restraint by Muschietti in in that regard um by making sure to focus on the kids first it is their story not Pennywise's story and um it was really beautiful how how well they were realized now not all of them fare uh on the same level of success but I would say that of the seven losers, um, four are great. One is okay, and uh, two kind of get left out uh, in in the lurch. So, I I posed on Twitter the other day who was the MVP, and um, last I checked, the MVP. And it was neck and neck. It was there was two people that it was very very close. Um, and I do agree with the winner here, but the the winner was Bev. Um, this actress 
is I mean everyone's been talking about this that she is we just watched a star get born now she was able to not only bring to life King's representation of Bev um, and nothing against the, the young actress in the 1990 miniseries but I just don't think that the screenwriting really did that character justice there so the 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 the, the fierceness the fiery nature to her um just the the toughness it, all of that is there but there's a grit that this actress brings as well that is just awesome um i i cannot say if you are listening to this and you haven't seen it um please understand that that she is so good in this role i mean she is i'm going to talk about the the number two in a second um and it was close. It was neck and neck. But I mean, if the if the number two person wasn't so close to stealing the show, I mean, it, she would have just really ran away with it. As it stands, every scene she is in, though, she kind of commands the point where you could very easily make the argument that it is just straight up Bev's movie. And I I love that concept. I mean, she just comes with a. Um, just a force to be reckoned with on screen like you just she owns the screen in in just her presence and she's really good at acting um so i'm very very grateful for sophia lillis uh she she was just awesome um and she has a lot to do it's not just about being badass and that's what i'm really happy that that um Badass isn't the right word. Uh, that I just read a great article about how it's the worst word to use when crafting um, a, a female character in cinema. So I mean, yeah, she's tough. She's got pluck. Um, you know, she she has great resolve, but there is a wounded nature to her as well, um, and you genuinely fear for her, for her physically and spiritually with everything that she has to go through and she sells every single moment of it she's great and humor some of the funniest parts of this movie and this is a funny movie but some of the funniest parts of this movie um you know have to do with with her and she owns it so she is by far the number one greatest thing in this movie the number two greatest thing in this movie and it's close is my boy uh, Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things who when I first heard he was cast as Richie because I only knew him from Stranger Things I'm thinking to myself why is he being cast as Richie why is he not being cast as Bill because of course in Stranger Things he's playing more of the, the Bill type of character and if you listen to my review of It or my review of um, Wizard and Glass um, you'll know that that type of the, the way that Stephen King crafts the, the jokester figure, um, they aren't just comic relief. They are leaders in their own right. So Cuthbert was, you know, Roland's best friend and right-hand man, but a, a, a genuine leader. And same thing with Richie. If anything happened to Bill, Richie is the one that they turn to. And I don't feel as though the, the 1990 miniseries 
did that justice or conveyed that. They focused too much on the jokes, on, on the kind of caricature of what Richie is without really getting to the heart of Richie. And Richie knows how to push buttons and he knows how to be annoying. Um, and the fact that he is just so nonstop in this movie, he is a, you know, I described um, Sophia Lillis as, as being a force, but so is Richie in this movie in a completely different way, but a great way. Um, but he very he is also very much a leader in this movie. In fact, he's part of one one of the turning points um, towards the end of this movie. Um, so I he was great. I mean, and just like how he just kept going for high fives the entire movie. Like I said, like he was just nonstop, and his banter, especially with um, with Eddie, uh, was was just spot on and that needed to happen because those two have such a, a bond um, in in the book um, it was really important that they were able to to, to get that right um, and and Jack Dylan Glazer who Grazer who, who played Eddie was such a he to me was such a surprising presence in this movie because his unrelenting neuroses was it didn't paint him as a as a weakling or a sad sack it was just kind of a fun character caricature you know he was like a, a walking um you know web md uh just barrel of neuroses that was just awesome like there's one extended scene where they're riding their bikes and he just won't shut up about all of these fears and he's just you know kind of just rattling off all of these things that could go wrong like he's some you know google summary page and it, it was just i just found myself cackling at, at how joyful it was um and and of course like his his banter with 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 uh richie is is just spot on so those three i thought were by far the the best things of this movie i thought that um the the, the young actor who played um who played Bill uh, Jaden? Uh, I can't remember his last name. Um, like Lieber, Lieber, uh, Lieber something. Um, he, you know, he was uh, he was really really good. He it, it's it's almost an unforgiving role um, because that leader role is so straight laced. But he also has to be the face of grief. He is our introductory character to the the tragedy that is befelling Derry. Um, and he sells these these moments with uh, with grief and walking through this shadowy world in which he has lost a a younger brother that he feels responsible for and knowing that his parents are drifting away from each other and away from him and being lost in the fog of their own grief it is there's so much sadness that shrouds this character and yet you can't really describe him as a sad character because his his light shines too bright um and Jaden uh Lieberher uh does does what he needs to do in order to convey the strength um, and leadership qualities of of Bill Denbro, um, and there was a scene in this movie that to me worked really really well, and that was um, in in his father's garage when he had built a um, a makeshift model of of the Barons to illustrate what he thinks could have happened to to George, and it's a great way to convey the information to the audience as well. Um, it was very, very clever. And actually, what was interesting is when, when the movie was done and um, my wife and I, we were driving back and, you know, she she was asking me some questions about 
the story where it might go in 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 chapter two as they're adults and you know she was asking you know what bill grows up to be and what ben grows up to be and i said bill grows up to be the writer and um ben grows up to be an architect and she was like well that doesn't make any sense and i was like what do you mean she goes well ben was the one that wrote the poem and bill was the one that created the 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 tunnels and in that moment it was so dead on you know she was really onto something there and i wonder if she kind of pinpointed something that the um creative um, minds behind this movie attempted to to kind of illustrate that there there is so much similarity between um bill and ben sort of some doubling going on there where either of them could have very easily been swapped as the love interest um, for Bev um, because both of them are, are vying for, for Bev's you know, attention and, and Bev's heart. But you know, so similar are they that either one could have lived each other's life. I, I think that that, you know, she, I think that, you know, kudos to Mrs. Constant Reader um, for, for, for catching that one. That was something that went over my head, but that was, that was awesome. Um, so speaking of Ben, I, I, I can't say that, that Ben was in, in the top tier of Bev, Richie, Eddie, and Bill, um, and Bill Skarsgård, um, as Pennywise. Um, Ben, I, I think he just seemed to disappear for large chunks of this movie. Um, and I, I, I really liked the casting. I really liked the kid. He just seemed to get who Ben was, um, but uh, but I, I just feel like the, the movie did not do him justice. Um, same thing with Mike. Mike just never seemed to gel, and maybe that fits with his outsider um, characterization in the movie. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe this is just a personal uh, opinion, but to me, they saddle him with a very horrific, um, almost unnecessary backstory in which his parents are burned alive. Um, I don't know if it adds anything. Maybe it does. I don't know. Again, you know, watching it for a second time might help, you know, reshape that now that I don't have the questions or the expectations of, you know, what's going to happen to Mike. I can just judge the character of Mike for how Mike is given to us in this movie. But that did not work for me. I thought there was something lacking about what it, it did to this character. And I think that it distanced him from the rest of the losers. And then there's Stan. Um, who I think just suffers from an identity crisis as it is because in the book, if you remember, he is so straight-laced that um, he has... There's a, a moment in the novel that King captures so perfectly the, the horror of Pennywise and it's through the eyes and mind of Stan. And spoiler alert, it, it shows why Stan is going to be the one to kill himself because he is so rational-minded, um, so driven by logic that everything that the clown and it represents is such an affront to the logical world and rationality that it offends him on the deepest level. Um, so that that's important to note about Stan. However, that... Uh, too overlapping of Eddie's neuroses, you know what I mean? So I I wondered, and this is this is gonna be contested, and I don't blame you if you argue me here. Um but if they had collapsed a couple characters into each other, um, then I don't know if I would have minded if 
they kind of merged Stan and Eddie or Mike and um, Ben um, and collapsed it down into a, a gang of five instead of seven. Um, I, I don't know if I would have minded that. Um, I think that it could have strengthened the amount of time that we had with the characters without letting a couple of the, the, the characters, you know, hang out to dry in the weeds like Stan does, like Mike does, like um, like Ben to a lesser degree than, than Stan and Mike do. But Ben, I think, does suffer from that as well. So, I mean, that is, I know, going to be a controversial take, but it's one that I had mentioned in my part three review, I believe, of, of it, um, the, the book. And it's one that, based on what I saw here, at least the first time around, um, I, I still believe um, wouldn't have hurt this movie. But you know what does not hurt this movie as well? The humor. This is legitimately a funny movie. In fact, I, I think that the the uh, the moments of levity and humor um, are more natural and organic and and funnier than the scares are scary. Um, I would, you know, I you can't classify it as a comedy. It's not comedic, but it is funny. Um, it is a funny movie, uh, and the, the the humor comes, like I said, organically, naturally from the way the the, the losers interact with each other and. Just the tour de force of of Finn Wolfhard as as Richie, just foul mouth, um, just nonstop. Like I said, always going for high fives and just cracking really bad dad jokes the entire time. I can really relate to that. Um, he was great. He was great, and I found myself chuckling um, the entire time. And the inclusion of the new kids on the block was such an inspired. Um, decision on their part that was great that was great and that kind of is just a microcosm of the fact that they decided to set it in the 1980s now i have long been on record saying that this was the right decision to make because if it had been set in the 1950s then we're going to get the present day which is going to be in the 1980s and and why what does it matter at that point because when king wrote it he was writing it in the 80s and he was telling the story of his childhood which was in the 50s so it makes sense in the book because it's such a personal experience for the author. But now that we are decades removed from that, um, it would just become a, an affectation that would take us out of the story itself. It might be more pure to the text. However, I do believe that it would take away the potency of the horror and the themes and the characterization because we are so far removed from the 50s and it is not personal coming from Andy Muschietti or the screenwriters who might not have lived the 50s themselves. But, however, um, I am of an age where I... Don't get me wrong. I love stories that are set in the 1950s. I think that anyone reads Stephen King or grew up, you know, watching Spielberg. I mean, these are people that were writing of their experiences and their childhoods, which happened to be in the 1950s. So through osmosis, it almost feels like I grew up in the 1950s. However, I didn't. I grew up in the 1980s, and um, I, I can relate. Um, and I think that people of my generation who are now out there. Um, behind the cameras and writing the books for mass production you know the cycle continues which I think works very well for this story which is all about the continuing cycle I mean I in the books it rises every 28 years in the movie it rises every 27 years and I think that the only reason why it rises 27 years and not 28 years is because um 
27 years ago, we had the 1990 TV miniseries. So from a metatextual, metafictional level, um, the cycle continues. The cycle repeats itself. So, And also, I, I think that, you know, this movie, you know, invokes those Amblin movies that Steven Spielberg made. And, and people have mentioned The Goonies. And those movies, you know, feel of a time where you had suburbia which was functioning very similarly to, to 1950s suburbia so I, I think that it, it it reinforces the themes of the 1950s without us actually being in the 1950s so um, I think that the 1980s uh, works really really well you know of course you know like my wife caught on to the fact that you know, when she cut her hair, when Bev cut her hair, you know, she looked like Molly Ringwald. That was later referenced in the movie itself, but flew over my head. But I mean, decisions like that, I think, work so well. Um, I love the fact that uh, you know the the deadlights. I mean, when when he opened his mouth and we started to see the lights, I was like, ah, I love the fact that the deadlights are in this. Um, but one thing that that, that works so well, um, besides the the clown and the kids there there's something that the 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 1990 series did not get um and that was the adults the adults i mean thematically speaking the it represents you could argue that it represents a lot but one thing that it represents is the is the horror of adulthood okay so what would that be if you didn't show the horrors of adults themselves and how they're just so disappointing um, as as a people, because these are the people you're supposed to depend on, and every every opportunity they they just don't disappoint you, but they are actively out to hurt you in some ways, large or small. And I was so happy in the trailer that Mr. Keen was was featured. And for those of you who are looking for Mr. Keen, you could find him there, just sneering in, in the camera. Because to me, Mr. Keen is the quintessential dairy. Um, adult someone that is supposed to be helpful a pharmacist but takes great pleasure at knowing that others are in harm so in the books of course he is the one that is refilling um eddie's prescriptions and he is the one that ultimately tells richie or eddie that it's a placebo but he takes pleasure from it at the same time Mr. Keen doesn't do that in this movie. Um, Mr. Keen somehow manages to be even worse. There is a scene where Bev is flirting with him in order to um, allow the boys an opportunity to escape from the store and shoplift in order to, to help Ben. And so she is flirting with Mr. Keen, and it is so creepy how hard he is flirting back. It made me so uncomfortable and poor Bev that she has learned how to do that because she knows the power that she has over guys because of the life that she's living with her father it's so tragic and so sad um you know so we we get that with Mr. Keen um just the way that Eddie's mom is just sitting in the shadows of her house um and of course she has you know Munchausen's by proxy and that was always the case um but it's you know very it's displayed very well in this movie in the trailers prominently we we saw that image of when 
Ben's getting carved up by by Henry Bowers. Um, the the car drives by with the adults, and they just leave him. Um, they don't intervene. They don't help. Um, it's a great way to illustrate it. And then we have Bev's dad. And in these scenes, it is just hard to watch. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of speculation in the books and in here whether or not, you know, you know Bev has actually been the recipient of, of um, sexual abuse. And I don't think that that's the case. I think that the true horror comes from her knowing that it is going to happen. Um, that the way that he's acting is so wrong and that fathers don't act this way and that he is so obsessed with her sexually that it is just a matter of time and it's this ticking time bomb of tension um, and betrayal. That's that's what I get out of it. That's what I think is, is happening with, with Bev. Um, and my heart just breaks. I mean, it's hard not to watch those scenes play out and especially how well uh, Sophia Lillis plays it um, it is it is just truly awful it is of the most horrific things in this movie um, played to perfection by all of the actors involved um, so they, they're able to, to illustrate how the adults in this movie are just terrible terrible people the small details in this movie um, really make this movie shine um, whether it be Betty Ripson's mother waiting for school uh, to let out uh, in the hopes that her daughter will be one of the students that are, are leaving even though it's been months and she's been missing the missing posters the curfew sign um, all of these are just great examples of, of of the details in this movie you know and, and and the fact that it feels like dairy right I mean you know the kissing bridge is there the kissing bridge the kissing bridge is mentioned it's, it's perfect you know and, and it doesn't have to be you know they, they they don't have to mention the iron works they don't have to mention the other gruesome moments from dairy's history but they do and it works and I'm very grateful that they do that um, and you know, they balance the these moments of just loving King's material with high quality, big budget set pieces and and, and intricate design. So that the house on Nybolt Street, I mean, it looks amazing. I mean, it doesn't look like what it looks like in the books. I mean, there was a, um, a blandness to the outside. It was dilapidated, certainly, but it wasn't stylized haunted house the way that this is. Um, you know, so it is stylized. It doesn't look like it does in the books, but it is now, from this movie, a, a definitive haunted house in horror cinema. And and that's what I like about this movie is that there there is a joy in this movie, an October Halloweenish joy. Um, I mean, there's gruesome stuff. Don't get me wrong. And I've mentioned you know the, the death of Georgie, the, the the horror of what befalls Bev, um, the, the life that she has to live. But there there is pleasure to be taken in the scares in this movie the, the same way that that you feel like when you're walking through a, a halloween haunted house right and that's what pennywise has done to dairy he has just turned it into a a, a halloweenish haunted house and i am totally down for that um and uh speaking of of pennywise uh one thing that i really like is that he feels very much at times Freddy Krueger-ish, okay? Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about Freddy in a moment, but um, 
I, I like the fact that this is set in the 80s and there are some elements that he has in terms of his characterization and how he's able to warp reality and, and affect people through fear the way that Freddy does. Um, and some of the set pieces give us, at least one set piece, um, gives us uh, a, a very classic Nightmare on Elm Street um, styled effect. And that is uh, when Bev is in her bathroom and her hair comes out of the sink. That, to me, was so Nightmare on Elm Street, and I was so, so happy for that. So these are all the things that I can say worked. Without seeing it a second time, seeing it on the big screen, um, you know, seeing it in the drive-in, even through all the distractions, these are all the things that worked wonders. Like I said, what doesn't work as much, and I don't even like using that word worked, um, but what I found to be lacking like I said, um, Mike and Ben and Stan, I, I, I feel like they were not as fully flushed out as the other four losers. Um, and I don't know. Again, I have to see it again. But one of my complaints with the uh, television movie was that Pennywise was so soft. He just scared the kids. He never tried to kill them. Um, and I'm not sure if this Pennywise is that much more aggressive than the Tim Curry one. Um, you know, why does he kidnap Bev and not kill Bev? Why does the why does Pennywise as the leper chase Eddie and not do anything about it? You know, like he could have gotten Eddie. Um there are all these scenes in the book where there are some close calls, you know, Bill and Richie on the bike being chased by the werewolf. That is a close call like he Pennywise is trying to kill him at that point you know if Ben on the bridge didn't run away um he would have been killed by Pennywise who was coming after him there are these moments of sheer horror where like Mike was almost killed by Rodan um you know, he wasn't just trying to scare them. He was trying to kill them. Um, but here he is just trying to scare them. So is he just buttering them up, fattening them up? Um, if that was explained in the movie, I I, I didn't hear it. Um, I, that would be the, the rationale there, that that's what he is doing, that he is just, that's how he eats. So the more fear that they have, the, the fatter they are, so to speak. So I'm going to believe that that was that. Um but I just kind of had issues with him not actively trying, like he was haunting them, but he wasn't trying to just straight up kill them. Um, so I had minor, I mean, and these are quibbles, guys. I mean, I, I don't even really like, I mean, when we, when this movie was coming out like just a month or so, yeah, the month, a month after The Dark Tower came out, I have issues with me having issues with this, you know, um, I shouldn't. Because I lived through a bad Stephen King adaptation. This is not a bad Stephen King adaptation. Um, I I did have issues though with the fact that the 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 losers were so mission oriented. Um, I think that it loses the the magic of childhood. Just the fact that I mean they don't play in the Barrens. They have to go to the Barrens because that's where um, Bill thinks that Georgie would have washed out. Um, I, I, the, the purpose of them being children is because children play and children have magic and through their magic, they are able to combat, uh, it. And as adults, they're able to rekindle the, the magic of childhood, the childish 
in all the best way part of themselves in order to face down the darkness of adulthood. Um, and I think that that is, it's not as potent in this movie because they are so action oriented. Um, they are on a mission not to be children, but to be adventurers, to be monster hunters. And um, I, I think that there is some innocence lost there. The movie itself, of course, deals with innocence loss, but this is a different type of innocence loss because with the exception of them, you know, and in the quarry playing, we don't really see them being kids. And that was something that I really enjoyed in the book was despite the fact that they are all being, you know, attacked. Okay, so here I am. I'm in my basement and I am recording this episode uh, about a, a, a monster who is the boogeyman. <laughs> um, something was just making noise in the corner of my basement. And I don't know what it is. And I'm looking into my um, washer dryer room. Um, there are there are two doors to get into it. You know, pantry, two doors swing open. Um, one door is closed, and the noise was coming behind the closed door. Uh, I don't know if I should be concerned. Um, so if this episode is never released, it's because something burst out of the the laundry room to to get me as i was speaking ill about the it review um but no i i just feel that the kids needed to have some moments where they were just being kids and i like that in the book because even though they were being hunted and they were being haunted and they did have all of these struggles and grief and different different um conflicts in their lives they they still were able to play and i think that that was important so certainly we saw them on their bikes which was which was important and, and we definitely saw them at the quarry but you know i mean i would have liked to have seen them going to the movies i mean we did see the movie theater lethal weapon um and and batman but we didn't see them taking advantage of that and i i, I think that that would have helped show us what they were losing by having to combat this evil um so another issue that I have um, is the final fight. I felt that um, it, it was very limited in vision. I mean, they were just beating the crap out of the clown. Um, so it's cool that they're all coming together to do it, but the fact that it's reduced to such physicality, I think, takes away from the the otherworldliness of the of the of the creature. Again, it's cool that they're all just wailing away on it and it's defenseless, but I mean, we're we're talking about either that or the ritual of Chud and. I mean, for those of you who are listening, who have only watched the ABC TV miniseries, the the uh, confrontation between the kids and the it um, is wildly insane, and I I think that they um, this actually is kind of closer to the eh, of the TV miniseries. You know, they they showed they shot a slingshot into its head and light spewed out and it ran away like it, it's very anticlimactic in the movie um it was kind of anticlimactic here um and i i they have discussed how in the sequel spoiler alert they're they're gonna get weird with it they're gonna get trans-dimensional um and they're gonna introduce the ritual of chud which will be great i hope that it gets cosmic i hope that it gets wacky i think that it you know, the fact that they're now adults and they're bringing a larger world with them, I kind of want to see this larger scale that 
could happen, you know, where we have an infinite universe inside this being known as it, and this universe lives on the outside of our universe. It's some crazy stuff where there's a dead turtle, a dead space god turtle floating. Um, and, okay, listen, the fact that they actually had the turtle in this movie was such a great touch, you know, mentioned twice. Um, awesome. Whether it's just an Easter egg or whether that's going to be the, the basis upon, you know, so that they can build off of that in the sequel, it's going to be great. But, um, but no, I mean, don't forget that in the book, you know, the, the conclusion ends with... Uh, a major storm and a major flood washing a lot of dairy away and destroying the sewer system and they come as adults and this happens and it comes with the uh, the destruction of adults um, what it can do to the past and I, I want to be able to see the world and um, the stakes and the, the levels of destruction um, really escalate with them coming back as adults um, we had not necessarily small stakes, but a smaller conflict here um, in this one. And next time, next time it needs to be the battle for their souls. This was the battle for their lives. The next has to be the battle for their souls. And with that needs to come some really crazy cosmic shit. And I really want to see that. So we didn't get it here. They could have laid the groundwork here. Um, they didn't. I think that the movie suffers for it. Um, so hopefully they'll redeem themselves in the ending um, with, with chapter two. One way I don't know they're, how they're going to be able to redeem themselves is what they did with Henry Bowers. I just felt that he was miscast. I think the actor playing um, uh, Patrick Hockstetter should have played Henry. Um, that's the same actor who um, played Ben Mendelsohn's son in Bloodline. Uh, I think that he would have done an amazing job. He he was great as Patrick Hockstetter. And I think that just take him, put him as Henry, he would have done a better job. I didn't buy Henry. I did not buy Henry at all. And if Henry is out for the count, the way that he seems to be in this movie, the sequel might actually fare better. But it's also going to kind of be too bad that the, the Henry character isn't going to, to reemerge. Or maybe he will. I don't know. Um, now the, the next the next knock against the movie it's it's gonna be it's all subjective. Um, mileage is gonna vary on how scary this movie is for you. Um, for me, you know, a friend of mine asked me what I thought of it. Um, you know, and he was talking about how scared he was, you know, through it, and you know that night, you know, he had to go to the bathroom or whatever, and uh, like he didn't want to go into the hallway, and he's like, "Weren't you scared?" And I was like, "No." I mean, I recognized that it was scary. I just didn't... I wasn't scared. On a cerebral level, I understood that it was scary, but I didn't feel it. And he's like, are, are you a sociopath? And I was like, I don't know, maybe? Like, so it it's going to depend. Like, I, I'm not going to tell you that's not scary. I'm just going to tell you that maybe I'm too familiar with the text. Um, or or maybe just the, the scares. Because there was a choice of... of how to scare people that was on display here and I, I just the, the choices that they made didn't necessarily scare me I recognize that they are scary but jump scares um, and having a balloon be there and then the balloon pops and Pennywise there it, it might I don't even know if it made me jump um, but even if it did like it's not going to stick with me that's not going to cause me to not want to get out of my bed to go to the bathroom um, 
but that's just me you know i mean the stuff that like weirds me out more is is more existential metaphysical uh horror like what you know i'm sorry to keep harping on 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 how much i love david lynch but um for 15 weeks as as i was watching twin peaks the return it just reinforced like why david lynch is able to just really unsettle me you know just the concept of of me not being me like really really haunts me you know everything in firewalk with me i believe is terrifying there's a scene in twin peaks the return where there is a character standing in the hallway talking on the cell phone and um you know she's just having a conversation and it's a really interesting conversation because it's dealing with one of the mysteries in the show and then all of a sudden in the background you see a figure come around a corner and the figure is out of focus and the camera is not focusing on this figure but it's not shying away from this figure and it's getting closer and it's getting closer and it's getting closer to this character and to us and every step is such a a feeling of dread um it, it just like I was on the edge of my seat it really really stuck with me so there are um, there's a lot of stuff in that, that David Lynch is able to do that, that terrifies me uh, again I'm sorry I'm reviewing it and I'm talking again about David Lynch but that's the kind of stuff that, that really really creeps me out um, but I mean I will acknowledge that this is a scary movie it just didn't necessarily scare me um, it is a full blown horror movie I think it has a great um entry in the horror genre but um it doesn't necessarily scare me um but that is just me i think there was too much um jump scares and not enough um unsettling imagery that would get under my skin i guess i guess i could say like the shining like and i know maybe that's not the best example because people either love or hate it because it is or is not like the the book but what Stanley Kubrick did wonderfully is, you know, Danny, the scenes with Danny are terrifying, not because he has otherworldly powers, but because Stanley Kubrick showed us that the powers that he has are unnatural and that in of itself is terrifying. So when he is looking at his finger and he's talking to his finger, that's just as scary as two little girls chopped up into bits in the hallway you know there is something wrong with this boy and his mother can't help him that is the terrifying quality to to the shining and it's that kind of stuff that really really gets to me um so i, I kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier with with freddie in when king wrote the book he was uh if you hear a noise that's one of my two furry co-hosts um, making making her grand return to the Stephen King cast. Um, but in in the book, you know, King was very much writing a love letter to his youth and the horror icons of his youth. So, you know, we have the creature from the Black Lagoon. We have the teenage werewolf. We have, um, you know, the mummy. Um, we have all of these great characters. Uh, and... When I heard that it was going to take place in the 1980s, I wondered how they were going to be able to do this and whether or not they would, if they were going to have it take place in the 80s, then I wonder if they were going to acknowledge the fact that the 80s was, if the, if earlier generations had given us the universal monsters, which became just uh, iconic, you know, 
staples of pop culture dracula frankenstein wolfman the mummy the invisible man the creature from the black lagoon um the bride of frankenstein all these characters are iconic um and in the 1980s we had freddy jason michael myers chucky leatherface uh you know so we had a, the new wave of horror movie icons and I don't know. I mean, I understand that there's a timelessness by making the decision to not give us Pennywise-infused versions of these characters. But at the same time, it's also kind of a missed opportunity. Um, and I I kind of would have liked to have seen what, you know, not every time he decided to, to hunt the losers, uh, he needed to be a Jason or Freddy, but how cool would it have been if he was going after one of them and he was just, every time you saw him, he was a different version or a different approximation of one of the, the, the horror monsters. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's New Line Cinema who owns Freddy and Jason, so we could have gotten at least two of them. Um, and to have Robert Englund, like, just guest star for, like, one second, it would have been great. And it would have been celebratory, which I believe on some level this book is this movie is this this is a celebration of the horror genre um as much as it's a, a a really deep analysis of what makes things scary and what makes our lives scary and what is scary in our lives and childhood and adulthood um there is as much as much as it is that it is also a celebration of all things horror and all things horror of stephen king's childhood so if we are getting a, a story in the 1980s to me would have made sense um i get why they do it i don't think it's a huge knock against the movie i just think it's a missed opportunity and lastly the biggest knock against this movie is bev as the damsel in distress that is a disservice to the character to me it is narratively unsound i, I don't it just doesn't fit the character the character becomes a super villain in that moment Pennywise does not a, not a monster that wants to eat them um so I'm I'm not into that so much um I I get that it's probably just telegraphing Audra's um abduction in in the sequel um and speaking of which I, I posted this on Twitter earlier tonight but please please for the sequel Andy Muschietti if you're listening can you just give us uh Jessica Chastain who you have worked with previously um, as Bev and Bryce Dallas Howard um, as Audra um, because that's just going to work on so many levels. So please just do that. Um, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to belabor it. I don't want to belabor um, Bev as the, uh, as the damsel in distress. Um, and like I said, at that point in the movie, I was so focused on the moon rising above <laughs> Um, the, the screen that I, I can't really speak um, too much to that. So, okay, guys, make a long story short. Quibbles aside, and they are just quibbles, go see this movie. When it comes out on Blu-ray, buy this movie. This movie has re-legitimized Stephen King, and I think that it has opened the door, hopefully, to, um, to studios treating Stephen King respectfully and giving him the attention and the detail and the love that he deserves because even though like I said there might be some issues some small issues that I have here and there this is a really 
really good adaptation. It's a really, and even better than that, it's a really good movie. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing it again, free of any distractions, so I can just plug in and just go back to Derry again. Oh, and the location. Uh, Port Hope, I believe, uh, in Canada, is such a great stand-in for um, for for Derry. Um, and, and there were some Easter eggs in there. Uh, of course, the Paul Bunyan statue, uh, the Tim Curry clown, and uh, the turtle. Um, I, I'm sure that there were more, but those are the ones that I definitely noticed. Um, so, make a long story short, I really enjoyed it. I'm sorry that you guys had to wait for my review. Um, but the good news is, in a couple days, I will have another review at your disposal. I will share some listener emails. I've been getting a ton. So, guys, if you're listening to this, write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com and share your thoughts on it, anything that I have said here that you agree or disagree with. And one thing that I, I really want to hear is fan casting for the sequel. Who do you want to see as the grown-up versions of, of these losers? Um, so, you know, I just mentioned Jessica Chastain that um, there's a lot of rumors circulating around her um, being Bev because, like I said, um, you know, they, they have a history of working together, which would be great. Um, one piece of fan casting that I love the idea is Bill Hader as Richie. Um, I, I think that clearly he's funny, but if you, depending on the movies that you've seen Bill Hader act in, he's also dramatic. He has acting chops, so he can pull off an adult Richie that is still, you know, haunted. Um, so I would love to see, uh... I would love to see um, Bill Hader as Richie. And those are the only two that I, I can think of off the top of my head that I would like to see. So, But if you have any ideas, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com because um, I would love to hear your thoughts, guys. Um, and so make sure that you uh, come back in a couple days. I will have a follow-up review. I'll read some listener email, um, and I'll share my thoughts of seeing this movie in, um, in the theater theater, not the drive-in theater. And until then, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast. Oh.